Hello, and welcome to another COVID-19 Law and Policy Briefing produced by Public Health Watch, a George Consortium initiative housed at Northeastern University School of Law. Thank you to our co-sponsors, the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University, the Network for Public Health Law, and Change Lab Solutions. We're here to provide expert legal analysis during the COVID-19 outbreak. For more information on the legal response to COVID, please check out our report, Assessing Legal Responses to COVID-19, at www.covid19policyplaybook.org. Please use the hashtag, uh, hashtag COVID law briefing for any questions or comments in response to the briefing. I'm Scott Burris, professor of law and director of Temple Law School's Center for Public Health Law Research, and I'm delighted to join a conversation today with our guest, Professor Stephen Vladek of the University of Texas, a man who has made quite a name for himself as a perspicacious commentator on matters constitutional, including now um, our busy constitutional Constitutional world of public health law. Welcome, Steve. Um, Thanks, Scott. I, great to be with you. I take it you did not follow your senator in evacuating to Cancun. I hope um, you were I, safe and well. Would if I could have, um, but you know things were pretty dicey here in Austin for, for for a while. So it's just it's nice that our power's on. We can drink our water, and the sun is out. Uh, you know these are things that I think too often we take for granted. Yeah, it's, it's nicer when public health sanitation matters are settled and and not in flux like this. But today we're going to take a, a, a broad look at review of emergency pandemic control measures by judges. Uh, where is the law which was long seemed long settled? How is it changing and, and what should it be? Before we get to the merits, though, and larger themes of key cases like the Cuomo against Roman Catholic Diocese and South Bay Pentecostal Church in Newsom, there's a crucial, crucial procedural piece to these cases that, uh, as wonky as it is, may be as important as the ruling themselves. Steve, can you explain the court's shadow docket and what that that means for the development of the law here? Yeah, I mean, the, the term was actually coined by uh, Chicago law professor Will Bode in 2015. Um, and it's, it's really not as, I think, ominous, at least in general as it sounds. It's just, it is where most of the Supreme Court's work actually takes place as orders, as opposed to signed opinions and argued cases that are the ones that we tend to pay the most attention to. But, you know, Scott, what we've seen in especially the last four years is a real uptick in how many of these orders are actually having significant impacts vis-a-vis the status quo, where more and more orders, especially on emergency applications for stays of lower court rulings, for injunctions from the Supreme Court directly, more and more of these orders are changing what was the status quo before. Um, And we've seen that especially in the COVID context, where every single case the Supreme Court has touched so far that has anything to do with COVID has been on the orders docket as opposed to the merits docket, has been compressed briefing, um, a sort of application for some kind of emergency relief as opposed to just a question on the merits. And, you know, that sort of raises concerns because these decisions, one, um, tend not to be reasoned. They're often either very, very short, unsigned opinions or not even an opinion for the court. Um, Two, they don't provide a lot of guidance to lower courts. Three, we're not really sure what presidential value they have. And four, I mean, sometimes, you know, as with the Roman Catholic diocese decision, you know, they come very late at night, right before a long weekend, um, where it's almost, you know, a mystery as to what the local and state officials are supposed to do in response. Well, there's clearly a, a bit of an argument going on across the court about um, the substantive stake and standards in public health law, and not least the questions of, of evidence you're talking about. Are you are you pulling out any patterns from these late night unsigned cases and, and, and quarrelsome concurrences? Yeah, 
you know, it's, it's, it's a little tricky to pull out patterns because, again, so few of these have been accompanied by, you know, opinions for the court. I think one of the patterns, though, at least especially relevant to, to our topic, is that the court's intervention so far in COVID cases has, with one exception, been almost exclusively on the religious liberty side, um, where the court really has been fixated on claims from religious organizations or other plaintiffs that state uh, restrictions, COVID-motivated restrictions on indoor worship services, etc., um, run afoul of the First Amendment. And so even though the lower courts have seen a far broader panoply of, you know, COVID-related challenges to curfew orders, to bar closure orders, to everything under the sun, the Supreme Court, at least so far, has been fixated simply on the religious piece of it. Um, and I think that's both, I think, a telling piece of how the court's using the shadow docket to advance a particular view of the merits of some of these disputes. I think we've seen in these orders the beginning of a very significant shift in the Supreme Court's religious liberty jurisprudence, but also that the court has not seen fit to be nearly as aggressive and nearly as active in COVID-related cases where there was no religious liberty uh, uh, claim, where there was where where the claim was a, a a different kind of challenge to a COVID-based restriction. Well, I think maybe have, we can do a little roadmap for the rest of our talk here. One, trying to to sort of look at a state of public health law and that broad set of cases on the one hand, and the other maybe is what this where the Supreme Court is going with this because I think we may have opinions on both. Um, the at the start of all this, we we public health lawyers would just say, well, Jacobson is kind of where we look. And um, I know that you've got some opinions on <laughs> how to read Jacobson and, and whether it's an <clears throat> important presidential presidential case. Maybe you could say a little bit and I'll, I'll respond. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, Lindsay Wiley and I have written about this. Um, we published a piece last July in the Harvard Law Review Forum where, you know, we were concerned that um, in a series of decisions, especially in abortion related cases, um, some lower courts had really read Jacobson very aggressively as basically standing for the proposition that any public health measure um, is reviewed deferentially, no matter what individual liberties it might be intruded into. And so, you know, most prominent of these was the Fifth Circuit's, I think, pair of decisions in a case called Inright Abbott um, about Texas's refusal to recognize abortion as an essential medical service um, during the COVID pandemic, which of course made it um, very difficult, if not impossible, for abortion providers to provide abortions for at least a period of time last spring. Um, and what Lindsay and I were sort of pushing back against was the notion that Jacobson, which was decided in 1905, somehow, um, one, stands on its own for the notion that in general, we defer to governments when it comes to public health decisions, but two, that it is not at all affected by all of the subsequent Supreme Court decisions laying out what we think of as the modern framework for constitutional scrutiny and explaining that, you know, there are contexts where courts really ought not to defer to government if there are particular kinds of constitutional claims, for example, um, animating the challenge. And so it was basically, it was a plea, in a sense, for courts to both not overread Jacobson, but not underread Jacobson. Um, that Jacobson seems to suggest that um, government will have an especially strong case for acting in the name of public health. But that that's not a reason to thereby forswear any kind of meaningful judicial review just because the talisman public health um, is placed on a regulation. And I, I thought that 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 was a very sound uh, modern analysis. I, I'm dating myself a little bit, but my my days uh, of intimacy with Jacobson were back in the AIDS epidemic. And in those days, I think we had to be a little bit more Talmudic in our analysis of public health law because the Supreme Court just wasn't saying much. Um, I always looked at Jacobson as a as a period piece on one level. 
it, it came out of, it was an interesting meeting point between mo- proto-modern constitutional analysis, um, def- uh, enforcing the 14th Amendment, and um, actually 19th century nuisance law, um, and a public health law that was based around common law maxims like salus populi and seek utere. Um, and in those old cases, and I think what it was trying to do in the, in the new world of constitutional law, in those old cases, courts would look at the necessity of a measure um, as an important job of judicial scrutiny. Jacobson insisted that it was deferring in that judgment to a massive amount of legislative determination about vaccination and and a strong medical consensus. But it signaled in many ways, as I think Justice Gorsuch just pointed out in his, uh, I believe it was the Cuomo opinion on this, that um, it was also pointing to ways in which uh, potentially uh, it might have stepped in had had the facts been different. If, for example, Jacobson had been able to assert that he personally was at risk at risk of harm. But in in my you know tr- tracery of public health law from 1905 up to the you know the early 1990s, a big important case for me constitutionally was actually a Rehabilitation Act case, the Arline case, School Board v. Arline, because it had this running footnote battle uh, between Rehnquist and Brennan, in which they talked about whether or not this was the, the the decision of the school board in the case to bar a teacher with tuberculosis wasn't just a regular public health measure, like as in like the measure in Jacobson, and whether the court shouldn't defer. Um, and and what Brennan articulated in the in the text was this idea of significant risk um, that the role of the that that when public health took on a measure like this and imposed some restriction on somebody, they their judgments would be viewed with deference, but they had to demonstrate that there was a significant risk of harm. Essentially, it modernized the necessity test. And I come you know down to this day thinking that Jacobson should still stand for the proposition that in an emergency, in the chaos of a of a pandemic, for example, courts should be careful and deferential about um, looking at uh, at second guessing judgments. Um, this is the whole sort of dissenting side of the two religious opinions. Um, but at the same time, I, I agree with you and even in a broad terms with the majority that the court should, um, I think, um, be a defender against discrimination and and and, and pointless, needless violation of, of civil rights. Um, getting to the to the present day, though, I, the thing that strikes me maybe most about the, the two religion decisions is how overwrought they are. So they seem to me that, you know, the underlying question still is, did we need to do this? Obviously, nobody wants to interfere with religious rights. How, how are we doing with this epidemic and who should decide? Not this sort of sense that if the Supreme Court doesn't act, it's going to be another Korematsu. And, you know, 20 years, 30 years from now, we'll all be hanging our head in shame that churches were restricted for six months in 2021. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I think there are lower courts who have said that, though. And so I think, you know, the what's tricky for me, Scott, is I, I think on the one hand, yes, I, I agree, Jacobson is not irrelevant, right? Jacobson is not a, a, a moot point. I, I think that, you know, what, what I like to tell folks, I mean, Jacobson, the decision comes out, you know, just a few, I think, days before Lochner is argued, right? So the, you have this remarkable sort of sequence of Jacobson and then Lochner. Um, and I think if we were to sort of look at Jacobson through modern constitutional scrutiny eyes, I think of it principally as an opinion about calibrating the government's interest um, and the notion that, you know, we, we require the government to make a heightened showing in certain contexts, but that perhaps that heightened showing will be at least somewhat easier to make in the middle of a massive public health crisis. They still have to make it, right? But that the where the deference comes in is not in applying a different mode of scrutiny, but in suggesting that measures that might otherwise not have survived heightened scrutiny will in the midst of a pandemic. I think that's, to me, that's the easiest way to, to harmonize Jacobson with everything that follows. And as for, you know, as for the two big decisions for Roman Catholic Diocese from November um, and South Bay 2 
two from from earlier in February. You know, I, I guess my frustration with both of them um, is that. It, it, the court is clearly um, convinced that they have to lay down a marker about religious liberty in the pandemic, but they keep picking odd ways to do it. So in Roman Catholic diocese, for example, the court enjoined an order that was no longer even in effect, um, which is a remarkable, I mean, I, I realize it's a procedural point, but it's a remarkable overreach of authority, in my view, for the court to issue that kind of emergency relief in a context in which there was literally no government action to stop. Um, and in South Bay, too, I mean, you have this remarkable thing where you know the justices can't even really agree on the scope of the restriction as applied to singing, right? And Justice Alito has this weird point about 30 days. And all of this is happening, Scott, without the normal deliberation that comes when the court takes a merits case. And so well, I guess, you know, for me, like my frustration with both of the decisions is that there are so many procedural anomalies undergirding them that I just I would wish that if the court really does want to, you know, use COVID as a reason to say something much, you know, trans, very transcendental about public health. Take a merits case and do it, right? Grant certiorari, allow merits briefing, t- let experts come in as a miki, um, have oral arguments so that you can actually flesh out the countervailing considerations. And so that's why, you know, my frustration is not just that the court is sort of being a little bit sort of weird in how it's dancing around Jacobson, um, but that they're doing it in this procedural context where it's really, really hard to figure out what the long-term substantive implications are. Well, clearly, I mean, I, one of the, the terribly troubling things is the the fact that ultimately these should be fact-based cases. The question is, as you say, has the state brought forward enough evidence to suggest that what they're doing makes sense? I also think that that, that that sort of question of the burden also ties with the underlying rationale of Jacobson. We have seen in COVID something we've seen pretty much every time we've had a major pandemic in the United States back to yellow fever in 1793, and that is government doesn't do that well. I mean, it's really hard to to control a pandemic of a new pathogen. And so it probably makes, you know, dumb mistakes. It, it, it may occasionally, as in the abortion cases and is in the, the famous quarantine around Chinatown and, and, and the plague in, in, in San Francisco. And if, um, it, it does things that maybe are wrong. But, you know, to set a kind of strict scrutiny, First Amendment, unmediated standard is to say, ah, the facts don't really matter. Once we, you know, believe that there's some kind of First Amendment restriction, um, we're pretty much going to kill this thing. It's going to be fatal, in fact, as we say, of strict scrutiny. And, and you know, you see that, I think, in the, and maybe we should now move to that sort of forward-looking point here, what's really going on. The uh, the, the reference, uh, I think, Justice Gorsuch makes to um, freedom of religion as the first freedom. You know, they're clearly wanting to add this to the list of really important kinds of things that interfere with public health. And by the way, that's where I don't actually see these cases as surprising or really as deviation from longer-term trends. Since at least the Liquor Mart case in 1999, the Supreme Court has used the, the, the speech part of the First Amendment to cut back on things that used to be seen as standard public health interventions. And they have set such a high bar of proof that it's pretty hard for public health to show that that, that what they want to do is truly the least restrictive means or that it will you know, have an independent significant impact on the health problems it's dealing with. Um, it's become really hard to use warning labels or any kind of advertising restriction or any sort of soft control in public health to influence consumer behavior. And in those cases, the Supreme Court, not so much, but certainly the lower courts um, have sometimes 
offered a kind of hostile view of public health, like basically the idea that the government has no business interfering with legal products um, on the on the ideological belief that smoking is bad or that you know um, overconsumption of alcohol is bad. And I feel that what the Supreme Court has done here is simply fill in the last blank in the First Amendment jurisprudence of public health and say, hey, this applies to religion too. We are going to look at these cases when public health interferes with some aspect of the First Amendment activity as First Amendment cases. And, you know, uh, if if the public health authorities can muster enough evidence to survive strict scrutiny, then maybe they can go ahead. But, um, you know, if they don't, well, that's just too bad. We're here to protect the First Amendment. But in that in that context, that I think I think the contrast with what we might think of as conventional national security cases is really striking because, you know, the court has not been nearly as aggressive in using the First Amendment to, you know, constrain contexts in which we otherwise think the government is entitled to deference in counterterrorism cases, for example, in immigration. I mean, look at the, the travel ban cases as I think a pretty powerful example of the Supreme Court not aggressively enforcing the First Amendment in a context in which historically the government receives at least some modicum of deference. And, and so I guess, you know, yes, I, I think I think Scott is exactly right that the court is using the COVID cases to, yes, to fill out, you know, the First Amendment. I mean, I, I would just point out to Justice Gorsuch that the First Amendment wasn't actually the First Amendment proposed to the Constitution if we're going to be talking about what comes first. Um, you know, but the but I think the, the problem is, is that in the process, two things are happening. One, the court's doing it in a procedural context where it's not necessarily sending that message clearly to lower courts. Um, so that, you know, it's going to be easy enough for lower courts in the future to say, I don't think these procedural orders clearly establish this principle. Um, or, or they do if they want them to. Um, but two, it also, I think, really sort of is the kind of shift Scott in in doctrine that needs explanation that needs you know a majority opinion because it represents such a decisive break from how we've historically thought about these topics and you know I for one think that without that kind of long reasoned explanation and without some kind of explanation for why this kind of scrutiny is warranted in the context of a public health crisis but not in the context of what we think of as more conventional national security cases it certainly looks like the court is picking and choosing um, and in the long term I don't think that does any wonders for public perception of the court for its, you know, perceived legitimacy. Well, I, you know, couldn't couldn't agree with you more. It would be nice to have a real explanation. I think your point about national security um, is also quite important, and it goes back to something that that Wendy Parmet um, wrote in her in her great book about about public health and the Constitution, arguing that um, we really need to reach a point where public health is recognized as a constitutional value um, in a way that I think ultimately Jacobson did recognize. Um, Jacobson talked about um, what liberty really means and about about the social contract and the fact that we're in this together and we sometimes need to give up our individual rights. And that vision seems to be lost now um, in, in the Supreme Court's hyper-libertarian approach to uh, individual rights. Maybe. I mean, I think, you know, to, to me, this is where South Bay 2 is almost more interesting than Roman Catholic Diocese, because we do see a bit of a schism among the six conservatives um, on just how far they're willing to go vis-a-vis California's indoor worship restrictions, where the chief and Kavanaugh, and I guess the some degree, Justice Barrett, um, we're not quite as all the way on board the libertarian, the very heavily libertarian approach embraced by Thomas and Gorsuch, and I think we assume Alito. Um, and so, Scott, I wonder if if we're going to see that schism play out again in the future, where although the conservatives are going to be united on a heck of a lot of things that really, really matter, there's actually some tension between what we might think of as the more libertarian wing of the court's new conservative majority um, and the more sort of conventionally, I guess, establishment Republican wing. Um, 
Um, and, you know, I don't think it's any surprise that, that Gorsuch and Thomas are on, are in one of those wings as opposed to the other. Ditto the chief and Kavanaugh. You know, Barrett and Alito, I think, are the interesting ones, where it's not obvious to me that they're clearly in one camp versus the other. And I think, you know, I, I don't know that that's going to be a huge difference in the result in cases, given that there are now six of them, but it might in the outcome. And it might bear upon, you know, just how far down the libertarian track this line of reasoning goes the next time the Supreme Court actually does take up this issue on the merits. Well, um, let's let's keep an eye on that. I, I think um, I'm confident that, I'm reasonably confident that it seems that, that, that churches are empirically different from grocery stores when it comes to spreading um, COVID-19. And I am morally certain that a country that um, does not uh, embody solidarity in its law and require the abridgment of constitutional rights in order to uh, prevent 500,000 deaths from a disease is not going to be uh, in a good position to fight future pandemics. Thank you, Professor Vladek, and thank you all for listening today. We will be broadcasting here on Twitter every Tuesday and Thursday at noon Eastern time. Just go to at PHLawWatch or search hashtag COVIDLawBriefing. Recordings are available on the Public Health Law Watch website, and the shows are archived by the Week in Health Law podcast at www.twihl.com. The COVID Law 19 Law and Policy Briefings are produced by Faith Calic, Summer Brown, and Liz Voiles. We'll see you next time. Till then, please wear your masks religiously and keep the chanting to a minimum.